What's up, guys? We're back again. We're your co-hosts, Angelina and Olivia. Thank you so much for tuning in to Allegedly on this auspicious Thursday as we sit down to discuss society through the lens of radical politics, spirituality, astrology, and personal and collective liberation. We hope all of you listening leave each episode with a deeper understanding of yourself, your communities, and the world around you. At the end of the day, we want you to feel empowered. So sit back, plug in, and listen to what we have to say, because shit isn't adding up and we're about to break it all down. But remember, everything we say is a legend. Today, we're finally going to actually dive into the season. We hope you enjoyed episode one. We're going to be talking about the early education system. So last time we talked about like education in terms of like the collegiate and university level. And y'all will see why the two have very different, distinct, I guess, kind of weight or kind of like analysis Mm -hmm. after we get into it today. I remember when I was in third grade, my teacher had this system of like giving out pretzel sticks to people that she thought asked good questions, answered the question correctly. And so I remember one day we were doing this lesson on like, distance and and like miles and you remember the lesson topic (laughs) yes yes which I'm like honestly transported back into that classroom I remember exactly how it looks like and so up until this point I had not gotten a pretzel stick and I remember my teacher kind of (laughs) favored this guy it's not funny (laughs) (laughs) this bitch has a vengeance like you remember I don't even like pretzels they were like the Utz pretzel rods. They were like right. big and very salty. Right. It was the reward. Like you didn't give a fuck about the pretzel. It was just like you wanted the Exactly. Reward. It's the reward. And so this girl, I'll change her name, Catherine, would always get the pretzel sticks. And I remember <laughs> one time when, when Catherine asked a good question, my teacher was like, see, this is why everybody should be like Catherine. Like she's always thinking outside of the box, like good job, Catherine, look to her as an example. So when Mm. I finally answered that mile distance, whatever question correctly, she's like, you get a pretzel now. And I, to that day, I was like, damn, this is what it feels like to to be be on on top. top. (laughs) (laughs) And then I sat there, I sat there licking the salt off the pretzel stick in front of all my classmates. This is something we'll talk about more in depth in the episode, but it really reinforced this idea of what is right is good and what is wrong is bad. Yeah. The memory that's coming to mind is it's not as much of a triumphant story as yours. So in elementary school, which I think most people that like went to elementary school in like the U.S. and that are around our ages, like had some sort of behavior metric, usually marked by color. So ours was like, green yellow orange red and like Mm -hmm. red was like that was a bad place like let's say you like did something wrong like maybe you like didn't go to your chair in time or you like didn't come back from recess or you didn't line up correctly they'd be like go change your color which is like moving your like little stick from like green to yellow or whatever Mm -hmm. and then like as like behavioral infractions would occur you would like go down and down and down by the end of the day, you would have like a color for the day. So like if you didn't have any like behavioral infractions or like break any rules, you would stay at green because you wouldn't have to move your card all day. And so you like you would get a green stamp in your take home folder. I took that shit seriously, basically. She was like, it's not a game. It wasn't a game. Consistently every day, gone green, like you could look at my folder or sea of green, right? 
And one day I, of course, very fittingly, I didn't stop talking when like she was like class silent or something like that. She's like, Olivia, go change your car. And oh my gosh, like I was so distraught. So I had to change it to yellow. And so then when recess came about, I didn't go to recess. I came into my teacher's classroom literally begging and crying and pleading. I was like, I will do anything. Like, <laughs> let me move it back to green. And she was like, I'm sorry, like you broke the rules. Like there's nothing you can do. Even after recess, when she like didn't give in, I was trying to be like extra good because I was like, you know, maybe she can move it back up or some shit like that. Nope. I went home with the yellow stamp that day. When I look back on reflect on like why I was so pressed with it, like when I first thought about it, I was like, oh, I was so scared of what my parents would say. But my parents literally like didn't even care. They probably barely even noticed. So that was probably part of the reaction. But then another part of the reaction that probably stemmed from like my perfectionism. I didn't give a fuck about whatever behavioral infraction that I just broke. Right. I was pressed that like you just wanted that I green just streak. Green streak. Like I felt like everything moving forward and everything behind all the stamps were all tainted mm -hmm. that was one of my very experiences yeah. and the yellow stamp is brandished in olivia's memory forever literally i remember what the stamp in fact honestly the stamp kind of looked like trippy smiley kind of really like it was a little smiley face yeah wow how prophetic and part of me honestly thinks like reflecting on the fact that my parents literally didn't care i was projecting that like they would think of me as a bad person because I like got that thing mm -hmm, wrong. Mm -hmm. I think that like, it just goes back to what like Angelina was like initially touching on about how the education system, amongst many other things, reinforces like this binary of there being one bad and like one good and bad being synonymous mm -hmm. to wrong and like good being synonymous to right. So whether it be like, if you get questions wrong on an exam, you have gotten the question wrong and therefore you are a bad academic student. If you break a rule, you have done wrong in terms of like your behavioral expectations and therefore you are like a bad student. And so like there's a certain sense of mm -hmm. like inherency that comes with the words good and bad that right and wrong don't necessarily have. And so it's kind of like I think that's why people don't necessarily see how damaging that can be. So for example, like a mind that is like outside of the binary thinking of right and wrong can see that like if they got something wrong, they wouldn't be like, oh, like I'm a bad student and therefore like I'm not good at school and I do everything, whatever. But like a little kid, like it's either you're a good student or a bad student. There's no such thing as just like a mm -hmm. student that like does good and bad things, or at least that's not taught to us. That's where this rhetoric of like, yeah, I just like never did good in math at school. Like I'm bad at math. Oh, I just never did good at reading in school. I'm bad at reading. When it's like, no, you just didn't do good in reading at school. Exactly. So the first thing I wanted to add to like this whole idea of like good and bad binary thinking is also like the humiliation that kind of was like accompanied with that. So like when I answered something wrong and I remember like, my classmates like laughing at me. And I really feel like the humiliation that I experienced in school really stopped me from continuing to question things and to like admit when I don't understand things. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just really feel like my curiosity was kind of like squashed because of that. I was too scared to ask more questions 
because I would be seen as like dumb or wrong. And then the other thing that I wanted to add to, what was the last thing you were just saying? Oh, the math thing. Yeah, I think that's also sad because I feel like it kind of robs like students and like children from like actually continuing to explore. Like, yeah, you probably were like considered bad at math because you had bad grades in math. But like, what if you actually liked math? I feel like that kind of like discourages you from continuing to like want to learn more about it because like you were deemed as this like bad math student. Yeah, it literally creates trauma. And it's like, okay, like, Maybe you are just bad at math, but what if you're bad at math in that context? Like, because we know like math shows up in all forms of our life, right? And like math is hardly ever beyond the walls of the education system confined to two times five on a worksheet. In Mm -hmm. fact, in the real world, math looks nothing like that. And so to use those metrics of like math, whether it be standardized testing, um, math worksheets, math homework as like your definitor of whether you fuck with numbers or you don't, you're good with math or not, is like sad, but also it makes complete sense because like- Yeah, it's like purposeful. Right, because like there's a certain like inherency that is taught to us as young kids. And it's related to just like the way the world is taught. Like the world is taught as like inherently one way. It is taught as like, a static fact of being. And so it is now on you to learn the Mm -hmm. facts of the way the world operates and works. And there is one right answer and there is one wrong answer. And not only is that like completely inaccurate, but it's also just like doing everybody a disservice. Right. Obviously the reality of the fact is like we are literally all different people and so we shouldn't be thinking the same way because we all have our own minds. We have different minds mm-hmm. and different ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is like allegedly his favorite text, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, because we're always going to be referencing it. Yeah, it's our favorite text hands down, but it's also just like how could you talk about education without talking about like one right. of the like most prominent leftist texts written by an educator mm-hmm. in this day and age? Yeah, and I think like the chapter that really pertains to this episode is chapter two, mm-hmm. where Freire is talking about the banking model of education. Which the banking model of education is basically his description of our current education system. Right. And the way, the reason he describes it as banking is because he accurately states that like teachers or educators see students as depositories in which to deposit information into Mm -hmm. kind of like a bank how like you just have like accounts and you deposit money into it that's why he describes it as the banking model of education it's basically just like education in which each student is seen as an object to be filled with a conglomeration of information Mm -hmm. and not only does like objectifying the student in turn like dehumanize them but also How Olivia was saying, like, our world is not static. I think he tries to emphasize that by, like, how he, like, talks about, like, this, like, passivity that we begin to develop in terms of our world, like, not seeing Mm. it as something to be transformed, Mm -hmm. but rather, like, something to adapt to. Mm -hmm. There requires, like Angelina was saying, a level of objectification, right? To see someone as simply a vessel or a container in which they are supposed to just, like, Mm -hmm. take whatever you're giving to them. And not take and analyze and regurgitate in their own understanding, but regurgitate it in exactly the way that you have given it to them. And so that requires a level of dehumanization to already engage in that process in the first place. And second of all, I think what Angelina was trying to say is that like 
in order to just like force feed people facts or knowledge, in order to do that, you kind of have to like flatten the understanding of the world, right? So like in your early education, Mm -hmm. your teachers aren't being like, sometimes it's like this and sometimes it's like that. And it really just depends on if it's like this or it's like that. No, they're like, this is this and that is that, which we know that is nothing like the world. Like the world is not black and white. If it, if mm-hmm. anything, it is just a completely gray area. And so like to engage in the banking model of education in this like kind of like force feed and regurgitate, it requires like a certain flattening of the world. And it requires you to put humanity as observers of the world as opposed to participators in the world. Mm-hmm. I think that the example Friari uses in the text is like when we learn about like, oh, the capital of Texas is Austin and the capital of California is Sacramento and the capital is whatever. At no point are we interrogating our positionality as such. At no point are we interrogating like what it means to be designated as the capital and like what the responsibilities of like the capital state are and how that city even began to be labeled as the capital, right? We're simply observers of just like the world that apparently or allegedly just is. Mm -hmm. And so it reduces like everything to just like isolated, independent, just like abstract Mm -hmm. understandings and just knowings. Yeah. We're learning information without any context or understanding of like the deeper meaning. Mm -hmm. And even just like, not just with understandings of the world, even like math, for example, it's just like two plus two equals four. And it would even be a different case scenario if we were even like allowed the space to be like, wait, why is two plus two four? Why do we spell this word without an E or whatever? No. I think people like have their gripes with the education system because they're like, oh, it's just rope memorization and whatever. We're not actually learning anything. And like, yes, that is true. But I think like where the real issue lies is the fact of like not only just your objectification, which is your dehumanization Mm -hmm. and your dehumanization is a necessary tool to maintaining your oppression, but also like what it is teaching you and what kind of relationship with the world it is creating in you. And so when that role as participator is completely dissipated or does not exist, that is where we start to see issues when people can't engage in change making mm-hmm. or world building behavior or liberatory behavior because they take the world as just a map in which they have to navigate themselves within as opposed to the world that they can co-create with. Mm-hmm. We always ask ourselves like, oh my gosh, how are these people just like going through the world, clocking into their nine to five? And it stems from early education. Mm-hmm. And talking about how just like the way our early education system is structured creates the way people move today. One of the main things that I would want to drive home and why this episode is even so necessary is because like our early education system is where we see the state create and mold the ideal American subject. And let's get into all the ways in which they do that. Okay. So what comes to my mind first is obedience, like teaching Mm -hmm. us how to be obedient to authority we can really look to even the Stanford prison experiment and how that kind of plays out when you consider teachers. I wouldn't say the majority, but like a lot of my experiences with teachers is just like they're on this power trip. Even like when you're at a young age, you have to ask them to go to the bathroom. You have to ask them to do everything. Mm -hmm. It really just creates this hierarchy. Like I think it goes back again to like the reward and punishment system in schools from like the- Like teachers and stuff. Yeah, like teachers. 
it like seems novel with this whole like the colored card system or the pretzel mm-hmm. sticks, but that really mm-hmm. just ingrains in you this need to compete with your classmates, this need for like mm-hmm. individual achievement that in order to be rewarded and to achieve, I have to do it at the expense of other people. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really have to do with the power dynamics or like the authority, but more so just in how we like how the molding interact with our peers. Mm-hmm. And like I even think about like the pretzel stick example and the ways in which like your gaining of the pretzel stick is always like dichotomized against other people's lack mm-hmm. of pretzel sticks or presence of pretzel stick. It's not an achievement even for you to just be like, yay, like I got this right for me. It's yay, I got this right by being like so-and-so, like the person that was used as the example, or oh yay, like I got this as opposed to this person who answered the question wrong and didn't get the pretzel Mm -hmm. stick. So like I remember in situations like that where they'd be asking questions and they would give us a word in elementary school, I would be listening for like what other students would say and I would like be remembering like what the people that got it right, what they would Mm -hmm. say and be like, okay, I got to be like that. And what the people that got it wrong, I'd be like, can't be like that. Right. It pits people against each other. Right. And maybe it's not as explicit because we're children, right? So you're not going to be like, oh, you got that question wrong. Like, I'm not going to play with you. But that's also how it is like in our real society. Like we aren't actively competing with our neighbor. Like, oh my gosh, you got to make more money than you. But we are implicitly competing when we realize that like, okay, only a few are afforded survival, Mm -hmm. only a few are afforded resources. And so if only a few are afforded the ability to live and the ability to thrive, it's going to put you in competition with your neighbor, Mm -hmm. whether that competition is explicit or implicit. Just like with the pretzel stick example, like we are out here on fucking survival of the fittest. This isn't Squid Game, right? <laughs> but it is. But it is. And that's where the social commentary in that show comes from. Right. You inherently put people against each other when you make people's well-being a commodity instead of a God-given mm-hmm. right. Ooh, let's talk about the GT, Gifted and Talented Program, because I remember even that too, like thinking about how the pretzel stick experience kind of subconsciously made me start to believe like, okay, if I'm smarter than somebody, then I'm better than you. And so Mm -hmm. when I finally in fifth grade was accepted into the GT program, I was like, Mm -hmm. yes, now I'm smarter than everybody. I can leave the classroom. Everyone is watching me leave to go to Mm -hmm. GT and they know that I'm better than them. Mm -hmm. I think GT was a pretty national experience and every school's version of GT is probably a little bit different. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can only speak for me and I've gone through a lot of GT programs because I moved so much as a little kid and the test for me consistently was like logic puzzles and logic. um, Yeah. Basically, like if you got a high enough score on these little logic puzzles and all that stuff, you would be identified as like gifted and talented, which that's a pretty big title to like put on like freaking like seven, eight, nine, ten year olds. But anyway, then you would also have other people in your grade that were also identified as gifted and talented. And then you would be like in a gifted and talented program. And that's where like it probably differs a Mm -hmm. lot. In one school I was in, like, we would go to another class towards the end of the day and, like, basically just do, like, extra math and stuff because we were, like, ahead and stuff like that, which I hated that one because I was like, how are you going to give me more (laughs) work? For me, it was, like, 
learning about the medieval times and then bringing in a dish. That was my other one. Yeah, Yeah. cooking something from the medieval times and eating it. Yeah, like the GT program that I actually loved, it was basically just alternative school. Like we would get there, we'd put our backpacks up, we would like do a couple of Sudoku puzzles or some crosswords. Then we would learn about some like like Mm -hmm. obscure literally history fact and whatever. But I actually really credit that GT program for like creating my love of learning because like I loved going there. Mm-hmm. Like I saw that as such a break from school. I loved it. Well, now I'm just like, why is that opportunity for like alternative schooling and like those types of learning only afforded to these like quote unquote gifted and talented students? Mm-hmm. Like what even like separates the gifted and talented students from the regular ones aside from like these logic puzzles? Right. Which is the question that people need to ask themselves. But I think like in terms of what role that plays also in like the molding of young minds to be good subjects of the American empire, like I really think that GT programs teach people how to be good class traders and how to be good race traders. Mm. So for example, for me, the school that I was in where I had like a really good GT program was like a low income school. We were like all like black and Hispanic and Asian. And Everyone in my GT program was also Black and Hispanic and Asian. Basically, this idea that like you are not like other Black low-income students. You are not like mm-hmm. other Hispanic low-income students. You, you're different. You're brighter and you're smarter. Mm-hmm. And it teaches you to kind of like basically be a class trader, basically be a race trader and not in the good way. And that is mirrored like in today's day and age, right, where we see the concepts of black excellence, like lead actual black people to perform anti-blackness because like I'm different. I'm not like you other Negroes or like we see like the model minority lead like Asian Americans to see themselves as better than like low income Asian Americans. But specifically and in terms of ethnic children, see their status in the diaspora or see their status in the imperial core as in some way being better than mm-hmm. their racial counterparts, their class counterparts. Right. Better because I worked harder or right. I tried more. And where the traitorship comes into play is not the fact that you're like going to the GT program or not the fact that like you're making a lot of money or you have a good job or whatever. Where the traitorship, if that's a word, I think I'm making <laughs> that word up, comes into play is the fact that you think that the people that aren't at that level that is as a result of their own mm-hmm. individual meritocracy mm-hmm. or their own individual work ethic or their own individual just inherent self. And that's where the issues come about. Mm-hmm. What Angelina was saying, like in terms of GT, if anything separates the students, it's abysmal because it is based off like a little exam that was like an hour long of logic puzzles. And even that abysmal difference cannot be correlated to any sort of difference in someone's intelligence, aptitude, IQ, whatever, whatever. But that difference is like used to create a like, I'm inherently Mm -hmm. gifted, I'm inherently talented, right? And so you, therefore, are not talented. I mean, the same thing can be said for like, the kids that were like, in remedial classes, the kids that were in speech therapy classes, the kids that were in um, ESL and stuff like that. Those kids are undergoing the same things that the gifted and talented kids are leaving ki- class every day or whatever. Mm, but why but does nobody want stigma. to? Exactly. But why does nobody want to go to ESL? Mm-hmm. Kids know what's up. It creates just like false stratification already. 
So like, of course, in your young little brain, when you are learning about the world and when you are learning about how things work and your first instances of socialization, you are encountered with a stratified classroom already on arbitrary factors and metrics. Of course, you're going to believe that's just how the world works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, honestly, my main thought is just like, this is why we're fighting. This is why the kids are fighting. This is why we don't have solidarity with one another. Mm -hmm. And even just like what you were talking about earlier about how like the teacher-student power dynamic, right? It makes sense that we have to be stratified. We have to teach each other that like you can't be in solidarity because if we understood solidarity, if we understood that like we are all students, we are all in this together, the teacher a student power dynamic would be completely disrupted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the same way that like as adults, right? We see them teach us to punch down instead of punch up whenever we arrive at issues. So Mm -hmm. whenever we have issues of like no jobs, we're taught to punch at illegal immigrants. Whenever we have issues of like increased crime, we're taught to punch at black and brown people. When really all of this is coming from like, the top right and the teacher's power is seen as like almighty and tried and true like it's going to be very hard for us to reckon with the systems and structures and the people and the ruling class that hold power Mm -hmm. in our adult life yeah and we even talked about it in like the university episode like in theory it would just be so easy to all leave class to all not take a test But it's like the ideological, I'm just like basically repeating everything we just said. Mm -hmm. It's so ingrained in our heads. And that is why like the education system is like a completely necessary Mm -hmm. step in the creation of the ideal American subject, because your brain has to be molded to think this way in order to carry out the duties of the American empire. Because we know the natural way children think, and we'll talk about this probably in a future episode is inherently liberatory, is inherently world building, is inherently imaginative. And so that completely has to be stomped out and a new way of thinking has to be molded Mm -hmm. in order for the American empire to continue to receive life forms. Right. And I think like when we were talking about earlier about the objectification of students and not seeing them as dynamic people, I think about like the way this nation sees prisoners. And the eerie, honestly, similarities between our education system and our prison system beyond the industrial complex part. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing that we have to think about when we think about like the similarities between the education system and the prison system is just the way in which both approach discipline. This idea that like, again, the right and wrong thing, like there are a set of rules to follow. And if you break any such rules, you are identified as an undisciplined student and that warrants in things like detention or timeout or whatever you may have it. And that's the same thing with like the way this nation constructs criminality. And in the same way that like our carceral state and our constructions of criminality disproportionately affect black and brown people, the disciplinary system and the carcerality presented in the education system disproportionately affect black and brown students. And that is evidenced by everything from like the school to prison pipeline to racist dress codes to the way that like black and brown schools will have security guards and metal detectors. At face value, one could conclude that our education system sees our students as criminals 
But I don't really think that is the case. Also, because we know the label as criminal is completely constructed in order to serve the needs of the American empire. So that word holds very little weight. But I think it's that, one, the education system sees students as objects to fall in line and also see students as disposable. The way we like identify students as bad is completely disposing of them. So for example, like in my elementary school experience, there was this kid like in our fifth grade class and he was like a bad kid. He probably just like embodied the idea that he was a bad kid. I remember he would tell us like, yeah, I'm going to get in trouble today. Mm. Like he, he already knew it. I wonder you like- You really internalize how, it. Yeah. And how different his educational experience would have been. If anything, they were just like, you're a good kid, right? So now that kid is not meeting educational benchmarks because their school and educational experience has nothing to do with learning and has everything to do with molding and fitting to disciplinary confines or stepping out of them either which way. That is what I mean when I say disposability, that like you're okay with a kid basically having their educational experience, the validity of which we can debate, but like compromised simply because of mm-hmm. their unwillingness to obey the rules of the classroom, which can be synonymous to like the rules of the land when we talk about the carceral system. Mm-hmm. Those are the main things that I feel like are responsible for the similarities between the prison system and the school system. And not just in terms of like idea, also in terms of practice. I mean, like we know the substantiated food quality of school lunches. And there's actually a lot of information out there that goes to show that in a lot of public school districts, prisons and schools actually have the same vendors. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about just like so much trauma, literally just so much trauma happens in school. And no, I just think it's like so unfortunate that like we're placing like these children who won psychologically and and because of like neuroscience, we know that their brains are just so malleable at this age. We're placing them in these environments like if, well, I'm kind of like thinking again back to like the school of prison pipeline now, if you're like surrounded by metal detectors and security guards, you're going to eventually internalize that like idea that you are someone to be surveilled, you are criminalized. And that's just like, I don't know. That's all I had to say. Like that shit will follow you. That is traumatic. It just makes sense. It just makes sense. Literally. And then we wonder why, like, so many people will see, like, prisoners and be like, well, they deserve to be in jail. They did a bad thing because we've mm-hmm. all been in jail. We've literally all been in jail. And not just in, ter- like, in terms of, like, explicit things like the school to prison pipeline and the architecture and the dress codes, there's also just, like, the lack of freedom. Mm-hmm. Thinking again back to early education. Everything is under a time constraint. Why are we forced to eat lunch at 1030 in the morning? Why is lunch Mm. only 30 minutes? Why do we Mm. only get like one hour of play and then the rest of the school day is work, work, work? Mm -hmm. And it really just like robs you of listening to yourself, listening to your body. Like even just how our classrooms are set up, how you are forced to like sit down in these hard ass chairs, which are not comfortable at all, Mm. like not allowed to move around. That is not allowing 
the child to like be a human follow being. Their, like, yeah, literally just be a like, human being. Like literally be a human being. Like yeah. you are seen as an object that needs to be directed and told what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. Newsflash people, children are fully autonomous human beings. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that too. It's like this idea that we always need to be watched over or told what to do completely, again, robs us of any opportunity of forming a critical mind and like learning how to think for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And Friari described it as like developing critical consciousness. Like mm-hmm. as long as you don't own your humanity, as long as you are constantly being dehumanized, you are not a conscious being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When we talk about like decolonizing your mind or like liberating your mind, it's really synonymous with like rediscovering your humanity. Because once you re- rediscover your humanity, you are no longer like an observer of the world, but are a participator mm-hmm. with the world. And like back to what Angelina was saying about like time constraints and robbing you of your intuition, like everything about the early education system robs you of being in touch with yourself and your own power, which is absolutely necessary for your participation in our society, in our oppressive society. A person that is in touch with their own power cannot go along with oppressive systems and structures that are constantly robbing them of their power every day. And where does your power stem from? Your intuition, your ability to create, Mm -hmm. your connection with the world, your connection with your fellow human beings. Mm And I was also like thinking about how recently I've really been moving with the idea that intention is everything. Like we literally have been taught that like everything we said in this episode to not move with intention, to move through the motions, to follow mindlessly, what has been deposited inside your mind. Yeah. Right. To just follow all these rules and move without intention. And like intention requires being conscious. Mm-hmm. And regaining your consciousness humanizes you in the process mm-hmm. to point to what you were saying before too. Mm-hmm. Something that I think is really interesting that I was thinking about is even just like school pride as like a precursor for nationalism, that blind like patriotism, because like what you are proud of, what you rep should come from what you trust. Like mm-hmm. how are you repping something that you don't even know? Like you just got told, oh, I'm a bulldog. And now you rep bulldogs. And now you're going to football games being like, Oh, fuck that school. Fuck them. Bitch, what? Yeah, it makes me think like about how sports teams would riot literally in the streets, like breaking shit and like how that is like that contrast between like what was happening during like the uprisings that were happening Mm -hmm, last summer. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even just like school rivalries and like stuff like that. You, you're acting like you have a dog in that fight when you literally don't. Right. And then we wonder why like people have such nationalistic tendencies. Like Mm -hmm. when you're told to like just rep something and support something and be proud of something just because it's what you are a part of and in no way should you critically assess if this thing is even in your best interest or not. You're getting detention every damn day, but you're proud to be a bulldog. Please (laughs) explain that. Right? And then we look at Americans you're barely surviving. You can barely make your rent, but you're proud to be American. Fucking waving your flag in front of your house. Exactly. Nothing exists in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. I think it's also worth noting that like the education system is objectively not interested in the pursuit of educating students, of educating the masses. Because if that was the point of the education system, Americans wouldn't have a reading level of what, like an average reading level of like what, seventh grade, ninth grade, something like that. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't be like struggling 
for everyone to have like basic reading comprehension. I feel like there's something very sinister about the fact that like we can force law state mandated for students to go to school every single day, right, from Monday to Friday. And they can leave said education system, not at all even knowing about basic math, basic reading, basic writing, all that stuff. It begs the question, okay, so then what were we learning? Exactly, And that's kind of what we have illuminated like in this last episode about what is actually occurring in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So this is chapter two of Pedagogy of the Press, um, page 74. And I think this answers kind of that question. Indeed, the interests of the oppressors lie in changing the consciousness of the oppressed, not the situation which oppresses them. For the more the oppressed can be led to adapt to that situation, the more easily they can be dominated. And I really just think that just relates to everything you were saying. Like, we are not being educated. We're being taught a way to think. Indoctrinated. So that, yeah, exactly. We're being indoctrinated. We're not being educated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the sooner that they can that our oppressors can form our minds, form our way of thinking, the more easily dominated we will be, as mm-hmm. Freire was just saying. Mm-hmm. All of that being said. What now? Right. That's what we always talk about on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to pretend like I have all the answers. Like, I'm just the messenger. Like, Freire talks about in chapter two, right. like once more, about how, like, the only antithesis to the banking model of education is employing a liberatory model of education. Mm-hmm. And what that consists of is counteracting all these elements of the banking model of education, of our current system of education, that are put in place to indoctrinate us to be Mm -hmm. the ideal American worker, the ideal American woman, man, whatever America needs to fulfill its duties. And so one of those things being destroying the student-teacher power dynamic. Mm -hmm. It's from the student-teacher power dynamic that the objectification and dehumanization of students begin. And so how we destroy that is each person becomes student and teacher in which the teacher can learn from the students and teach the students in the same way the students can learn from the teacher and teach. Right. And what I really take away from this process that he talks about is the sense of humility that comes with being a student, not in the school sense, but like of the world. Because again, like we don't know everything. And to backtrack, like that is also one of the aspects of a liberatory education Mm -hmm. model. Refusing to see the world as static. Mm -hmm. Because if we see this world as static, eventually we're going to see ourselves as people that can't change our world and like its conditions. And so in this process of like, he calls it problem posing education. In this process, it's really just like a mutual collaborative effort to understand and take apart the world. And I feel like that is like also just, again, like the foundations of like liberatory thinking, like it's going to take like a collective mutual effort to rebuild and to reimagine and transform and liberate ourselves. Mm -hmm. And another aspect of like a liberatory education model is a willingness to like contextualize yourself in the world you need to contextualize yourself and like see the ways in which the world defines you and you define the world it's not just enough to be like oh yeah like the bad guys are capitalism white supremacy and blah 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 and they're ruining everything and this is why and this is why like okay so what does that mean 
for each individual person, right? What is your positionality in the capitalist system? Because it's your positionality that defines how you act anti-capitalist. A houseless person and a house person are not going to confront capitalism in the same way because they have a different contextualization in the mess. A white person and a black person are not going to confront anti-blackness and white supremacy in the same way. And this thinking that, okay, so capitalism is bad, so everybody just has to do this, is a product of that simplistic thinking. You don't think of yourself as an individual that has a context, that has a story, and that serves a different role to the empire. Everyone doesn't serve the same role to the empire. And that's what a liberatory education like takes into account. It allows people to not just learn about the world around them, but to learn about themselves and what role they play in the world around them. And I think it's also important for anybody that champions liberation to really dead and understand what a liberatory education system means. Because at the end of the day, it's not just anyone that has the title of teacher that is an educator. Every single person, especially people that are champion of free world, are educators, whether you assumed that title or not. Because what Ferrari talks about in chapter two, education comes through dialogue. Mm-hmm. And simply being in dialogue with your community is a form of education. And because we have been indoctrinated in this banking model of education, it's very easy to revert to those modes of education when we're talking about educating other people. Yeah. And like Freire also says it too. It's like, if you truly want to have a liberatory education, you can't look to the banking model. You have to upend it altogether. I like want to ask like future educators and teachers this question, like to what extent is your desire to be a teacher reactionary? You really have to think for yourself, like, are you truly going into this to recreate the system? I think that's an interesting question because like, to what extent can you be revolutionary within the education system? Right, that too. Yeah, that too. So like, you can have all the intent in the world to be doing this, that, and that. But if they tell you, yo, like your kids aren't passing the state exam at the end of the year, what are you going to do? It's a hard question. Yeah. And it just goes back to the fact that like, like you can't change things from the inside, basically. Mm -hmm. You can actually enter the space and change it. Like there's been teachers that enter public school systems and completely like revolutionize the way their classes taught. But like, it's not an easy pursuit. It's not. Yeah. At some point, you have to be willing to break the rules. At some point, you have to be willing to sacrifice and put your life on the line, right? Not literally, but like your career life, your teacher life, Mm -hmm. to stand by these values. So that's a really hard question, but I would be down to hear it from like educators, not just teachers, like educators in Mm -hmm. every sense of the world, community educators, parents, because parents play the role of educators to their children. Once we can identify all the ways in which like the banking model of education aims to indoctrinate us, That is where we start to pinpoint where our decolonization process takes place. So if you know, like, oh, like I can look at myself and be like, oh, yeah, like in school, that is where my criminal or binary thinking was established. That is where you start to challenge those things because you can see where it came from. Like how we were talking about the most memorable early education experiences for us, like, 
there's a reason why you remember those things. Right. So take out your journal. Honestly, that's a very good journal prompt. Like literally just go back into your memory bank and like try to remember and list out all of these experiences because one, I feel like that's a good way to start like inner child healing, which we'll probably go more in depth on in another episode. It's definitely like a good place to start what Olivia was saying, like in decolonizing your mind just by looking at your own experiences and how you were shaped by it and then seeing how they fit into the broader context. Mm -hmm. If you were like, oh my gosh, they were like quoting Friari so much. I want to read that or I want someone to analyze that with me. Definitely subscribe to my Patreon. Mm -hmm. I've literally uploaded my completely annotated version of like the text on there and I'd be willing to, yeah. And I'd be willing to like answer people's questions and stuff like that. So you don't have to hear it from us. You can hear it directly from like the people that enabled us to even have these conversations. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I feel like sometimes it's difficult to like balance the hopelessness with like all of this like possibility of like new revolutionary methods. Just like based on what we were saying about like to what extent can you actually like do like revolutionary, like liberatory work in that like structure that obviously doesn't want that. But I think for me, like, that hopelessness stems from the banking model of education yeah. because you feel like the world is prescribed. Or rather not hopelessness, but like, it's just daunting. Right. It's like not easy. Daunting, yeah. right. When you're faced with this idea of like, how can I like employ this revolutionary idea in this space that is inherently reactionary? That should prompt you to recognize this necessity of a completely new space. Right. And you have the power to do that because you co-create with the world. Mm-hmm. You have the power to do that in community with other people. Yes, maybe as an individual teacher, you can't go into the in your school and be like, yo, like we need to teach these kids differently. But I'm pretty damn sure in the teacher shortage that we're facing today, if mm-hmm. all the fucking teachers in the fifth grade were like, yo, shit needs to change, shit would start rocking. You can't do shit as an individual. It's yeah. when you start to find other people that think like exactly. you. Radical change is going to happen with your community and in communication with your community. Period. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and that you learned something new today. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to support the Making of Future episodes, please consider becoming a monthly donor or leaving us a tip on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. All of those links will be in the episode description. Lastly, make sure to follow us on Insta, Twitter, and TikTok for updates and even more Allegedly content. Our handle for all social media is at We Said Allegedly. See you all next Thursday.